This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 27 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is speaking with people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. So I, did, I really enjoyed doing a bit of research on you, man. I'll tell you, this is this is going to make an interesting podcast. Hopefully you can take some of this video that we do. I'll send it to you. Yeah, uh, I just want to make sure that this audio recording is actually working. So what I'm going to do is... Um, so do you mind if I share my screen really quickly? That's the voice of Justin McAfee, the founder and owner of Urban Air Mobility Solutions Company, Right One Incorporated. My guest this week is right at the cutting edge of EVTO technology. Not sure what that is? Then listen as Justin takes us on a journey as a founder of his 100% electric turbine company. The application can be applied to not just flight, but also the medical, gas and electrical industries. His vision? To be able to transport you from anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere within an hour to Australia in your own flying car. Not bad for a guy who's dodged death more than five times in flying accidents. Before I asked him about his business, I wanted to ask if he was related to John McAfee of the McAfee Virus Empire. You know, there is some family lore that actually connects us uh, together, but in in uh, a, a traditional cop-out, I'm just outside the sphere of influence where I got any of the wealth. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. But, you know, guess what? That, that is life sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> but listen, you're, you're, you're full of other wealth, Justin. So tell the listeners a little bit about what you do and what your, your business is. Uh, my current business is called Right One. Uh, we are a highly efficient, lightweight propulsion module uh, based on compressed air. Um, and what does that mean really to you? Uh, basically, it means that in a couple of years, you're going to be ordering groceries uh, and it's going to get delivered to you by drone. And the cool thing is that with the right one engine, not only can we deliver your groceries, but we can also deliver your neighbor's groceries, uh, which is a huge advantage over our current competitors. And that's an amazing foresight. I know that people have been talking about drones and delivery by drones and even flying cars, which I want to get to later on because I know that comes up in your bio and LinkedIn. But OK, so so let's sort of cut to the chase. Why is what you do so different to what's currently on the market? So the, the current solution is that 95% of drones are actually using what's called an open prop motor design. And it's also being used in eVTOLs as well. Uh, and this is only because jet turbines can't be translated over to eVTOLs. Uh, so if we were to put jet turbines onto an eVTOL, uh, then you're talking about a delayed reaction time as compared to an open prop design. Uh, which is why we have the current solution. So Right One actually takes the jet turbine solution or everything that's good about it and actually translates it over to an electric module. And so not only do we have an instantaneous reaction time, we also have the compression that's necessary for the efficiency as compared to an open prop design. 
That's really interesting. So for the non-technical people that were listening to the podcast, I mean, I know about VTOs and I'm a real geek when it comes to sort of aircraft and stuff like that. But just explain some of the principles between VTO, because it's got quite a history, isn't it? When you go back in time, you know, the Wright brothers did their first flight at Kitty Hawk in 1903, as we both know. But VTOs are short takeoff aircraft. have been around since, what, the 1920s and 30s. Is that correct? So, yes, they have been around since the 1920s and 30s when helicopters started to get onto the scene. Uh, but the most remarkable aircraft that actually could do what's called a S uh, VTOL or a, a sorry a stole or a VTOL uh, is the Harrier jump jet, uh, which is actually a British aircraft. And uh, the way that they were able to do that was actually by putting a jet turbine onto the back of the aircraft and then ducting the pressurized air or the thrust to the wingtips of the aircraft, creating that VTOL effect instead of using. Uh, what you see on helicopters with a massive propeller. Yeah, because before that, and even just slightly before um, helicopters, which are pretty predominant around the kind of mid to late 40s, wasn't that? That's really when the technology matured enough to allow helicopters to be able to take more than one person and things like that. They had, is it gyro rotors? Is that the correct terminology? Yes. So gyro rotors is a really cool, uh, you might even call it a Leonardo da Vinci kind of invention. And um, what's interesting about gyrocopters is that they're, they're the worst of both worlds, but they're also the best. And I say worst of both worlds because not only do you have the drag on uh, the, the helicopter portion of the blades during lateral flight, but you have the drag of the lateral propellers on vertical flight. <laughs> so... But you have to pick and choose, uh, especially when it comes to the craft. Either that or you're sacrificing the amount of lift capacity that you could potentially have just with the addition of these other motors. Okay, so how do you in practice get a company such as yours dealing with short takeoff and landing type of technology? And how do you transfer that from the theory, the ideas, the, the excitement about the design? How do you turn that into a practical proposition? How do you go about financing these things? When you're trying to finance a deep tech hardware company such as Right One, uh, one of the main things that you should realize from the get-go is that it's exactly like what people say investing into uh, an airline is like. If you want to become a millionaire in the airline industry, you start out as a billionaire. Uh, and the reason being is because it's such a, a, a money suck. You, you have such high capital intensity at the very beginning that you can't, you, you don't have the, the customer base or you don't have the revenue generation to, to keep yourself afloat for such a long time, uh, which is kind of one of the strategies that Amazon actually played when they first IPO'd. Uh, during the, the nascent years, they were constantly losing revenue. And so that's one of the great mysteries for me as a founder in this current position is how did he do it? Uh, so I'm curious. I, I'm really curious about how it actually plays out. Uh, but with someone like Elon Musk and Tesla, uh, he did it as something a little differently. Uh, he created a brand and a lifestyle uh, that was going towards green and environmentally friendly kind of perspectives. And that's right. something that I hope to kind of mimic and uh, emulate 
especially with right one. Okay, so let's dive a little bit deeper into the kind of the ideas and how you develop right one. Am I right in thinking this was part of when you were at university where the ideas initially came from, um, or was it sort of before that? Did you have dreams as a young, a young kid, you know, lying in bed at night looking up at the the stars and what have you? What was the story behind it? In my LinkedIn bio, I actually talk about the first time that I almost crashed an airplane. And it was when my father actually took me out flying at the age of 12, and I nearly crashed our airplane uh, over Houston, Texas, uh, by doing what's called a steep turn. Uh, And a steep turn is not like a gradual turn that you would experience in a commercial airliner. Uh, A steep turn is actually about twice that, and you experience negative Gs as you're actually going around the bend. And uh, at that point in time, when my dad took the yoke from me, I was hooked on flying and it was done. Oh, wow. so, <laughs> so at the age of uh, 17, uh, I actually got my pilot's license and really started to pursue this kind of avenue of uh, actually flying and what that really meant. Uh, but the quintessential moment for Right One actually came at about age 15 when my father and I were actually stuck in Texas traffic. Uh, and if you've experienced traffic in Toronto, uh, say on the, I don't know, it's... it's 401, I think it's the 401 or the... Oh, the 401 is a nightmare uh, when it comes to traffic. Uh, it's an absolute parking lot. And all I wanted to do was just bypass it, skip it, exactly like what we did in Houston, Texas, and actually flying over Lake Conroe. Why couldn't we do it? Why, why can't we do it on a regular basis? That's where the idea came from. Fantastic. And and that's what dreams are made and realities are made of, isn't it? It's having that little glimmer in your mind and saying, well, people say you can do it, but why not? And I, always, I liked your attitude. Give me five minutes and we'll figure it out. Love it. Now, hold a second. You're, you're holding a few bits back from the audience here. You, you know, you nearly crashed your dad's plane once, but I got it from a good source that you've nearly died five times in flying accidents. Tell me all about that. That just blew me away. (laughs) Uh, Why do I keep getting into aircraft when I've almost died five times in general aviation? Well, majority of the time in general aviation, well, actually the FAA has statistics online that says that uh, crashes in general aviation are 91% pilot error. They're not the airplane. It's always the pilot. And so now you see kind of a a domain convergence that actually occurs between the automobile industry and aviation. There's a lot of technology that's being fed into these machines. And so now we're in this very difficult stage of actually trying to bridge the gap between us controlling the machine and it being fully automated. And it's a constant argument. And it's exactly like when robots started to appear into the manufacturing scene. Is it going to take away our ability, whatever it may be, our ability to manufacture, our ability to drive, or our ability to fly? And in some instances today, yes, you can make the argument that it is. But in other instances, I like to think of it as a win-win scenario where we're actually becoming more creative and we're actually solving harder and harder issues like climate change. So it's redirecting that energy, you know, it's giving you time to think about other things and pursue other um, avenues. Um, the, the, I suppose the the argument would be, and I'll, I'll put it bluntly myself, I enjoy driving a gas-powered vehicle, a petrol-powered vehicle, because, you know, as soon as you put your foot on that, you know, accelerator, get that roar of the sound out of the exhaust, 
I know there's pollution going on, but there's that visceral, visceral experience, isn't there? And I'm, I'm wondering if that's what people would miss eventually when they come to either fly or drive in a certain way in the future, that if all that is taken away from them, what replaces that visceral experience? Because humans really do it like experiences, don't they? They like thrills. They like to be connected to the vehicle they're in. Uh, am I off the mark there, or do you think there's still going to be scope for that in the future? No, absolutely not. You're, you're right on the mark. Uh, so the first product that I actually commercialized was a, a grenade launcher for firefighters. And um, one of the things that we actually started to realize when we started talking to these firefighters about the product was not that they didn't love the product. They loved the simplicity of the product. It was literally a launcher uh, that they could just put compressed air from their own tank into the launcher and actually use it to launch a cartridge two stories above uh, into the fire. And if there was anyone in the room, it wouldn't matter. It wasn't like Halon where it would actually suck out the oxygen. It just created this barrier between the fire and the material that was burning. So it saved anybody that was inside. Amazing. What we started to realize is that the chief loved the solution because they could pull up to the scene and put out the fire before calling in their crew. But the crew hated the solution because it took away the joy of actually fighting the fire. Isn't that incredible, eh? Something where, where you're going to be in danger, you know, but as human beings, we still connect with that somehow, isn't it? It's like pleasure and fear, isn't it? They're all linked on that sort of scale. So tell me a little bit about that product because that was very interesting. You did mention it wasn't a Halon-based product because I've seen those before. How did yours differ? Go a little bit more in depth about how your product differed to what was, there probably wasn't anything else on the market really that did it the way you did it. I originally got connected to the product through a, a graduate professor. Uh, so at the age of 23, uh, I actually started working with these two inventors that had five patents on the product entirely. And so we had a verbal agreement at the very beginning of the project that said, uh, you know, you can use the patents. We're not really sure that you're going to be able to commercialize this product. Let's see what happens. I love that. I love those types of conversations. Let's see what happens. Well, two years later, after pitching the 274 fire stations in the Atlanta, Georgia Metroplex, the way that I would actually pitch the product is by actually dunking my entire hand into this chemical compound and then taking a fuel-fed blowtorch and proceeding to try and burn my hand for 10 minutes. Oh, my. Yeah, firefighters didn't sit, hear a single word I said. They were trying to smell for the burning flesh on my hand. And when they couldn't smell it, the chief would come over at the very end when I stopped speaking and said, we'll take it. So you demonstrated really by example. That was the point. You know, it's not about spieling or saying, you know, a great pitch. It's about showing, isn't it? And show and tell. And, and that's really what made it successful for you. So what happened with that product in the end? Was that your kind of first bite of the kind of entrepreneurship, you know, kind of business? And, and where did it go in the end? Yeah, so that's definitely how I got bit by the entrepreneurial bug. Uh, but I would also say that that's the first time that I got bit by actually product commercialization in general. Uh, so there's not just a niche when it comes to entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is about showing and telling and uh, selling the idea. Uh, but when it comes to actually making a product that's tangible, uh, that's commercialization. And that's an entirely different skill. 
Definitely. I most definitely agree with you that. And that's one of the most difficult skills to really comprehend and to really get off the ground, isn't it? Yes. So when it comes to actually selling this uh, grenade launcher for firefighters, it was on a scale of tens to hundreds, uh, especially to begin with. Uh, So I started conversing with the mayor and we started uh, coming up with a, um, a tax subsidy for the factory that was actually going to be not only making these launchers, but also the cartridges as well. And that's when the two inventors actually came through and said, uh, Justin, uh, you naive 23-year-old, uh, remember that verbal agreement that we discussed a couple of years back? We want to negotiate. Here's the contract. If you don't sign it, you can't use our patents. Oh, boy. Essentially, I got forced out in the process because I didn't have the documentation to back up our conversation. And that is a really tough lesson to learn, you know, within business, you know, because as a young person or even as older people going to business first time, we often take people on face value. We also trust, you know. So what was the, what, I mean, did you bow it gracefully or ungracefully as the case may be and just say, you know what, put it down to experience. I'm going to move on from here. Was that really how you approached it? Um, I, I view any difficult situation as a potential leadership opportunity. Oh, yeah. The, the biggest leadership opportunity that I actually had was uh, a, with my experience in starting my own fraternity chapter at University of Texas in Arlington. When I say fraternity chapter, I don't mean like I founded a fraternity. What I mean by that is that I took my national fraternity, Kappa Alpha Order, and I actually founded a chapter at University of Texas in Arlington. Okay. And I, I, can I ask a quick question? Because I'm totally naive to do with fraternities because being from the UK, yeah, that sort of thing, that sort of thing really doesn't exist. We always see it in American films and, you know, like uh, National Lampoon's Animal House and the fraternities and they have these wild parties. To people who don't know what a fraternity is all about at university, what is it? What's the, what's the idea behind it? So... The idea, uh, you're probably thinking of like, uh, what is it, Beta House? Uh, is yes. American film uh, that doc- talks about like fraternities and parties and toga party. Uh, Absolutely. That's, that's probably about 10% of the inner workings of a, a fraternity. And those are the most outward facing because those are the points in times when you see it on uh, in college newspapers, uh, where you hear about uh, like pledge deaths, or you hear about um, a website called uh, TotalFratMove.com, uh, which is like the quintessential kind of cultural thing uh, that is uh, symbolized by fraternities. I hate it. I really hate it. But um, what's ironic is that Total Frat Move was actually started by two KAs. Uh, so my <laughs> my own fraternity brothers actually started. Uh, totalfratmove.com. Um, the other interesting thing, or the other 90%, is more the inner workings of the fraternity, how it's organized, how it's actually structured. Think of it as actually a startup business that's constantly being churned. And what I mean by that is that every four years, you have a new chapter. Got you. And, and that brings new blood and new energy and new ideas, doesn't it? New blood, new energy, new ideas, but it's the perfect form of a fast-growing company uh, with rapid succession. So your president, as it changes every year, it may change every two years, but majority of the times it's every one year. It's new blood, new ideas, 
but the chapter may succeed or fail depending on the presidential kind of mentality. Got you. And so from those, they're like um, an incubator almost, aren't they, for ideas that then would progress probably into an industrial environment like you were talking about and trying to develop products and ideas or apps. Um, So they're very much part of the culture of universities in the US especially, Uh, but it's a progressive thing, isn't it? To get you into a workplace situation, I imagine. Yes, that's the idea uh, of a fraternity. And the the best way that I can describe it in terms of the UK and Canada is uh, social clubs on university campuses. The the idea or the point that I wanted to make is that the leadership opportunity is all about actually uh, portraying your own personal brand. So if I were to actually get mad at these two inventors and actually tell you, oh yeah, I lost my marbles. Uh, Great. Yeah, what happened? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing happened. But that's not the end of the story for the grenade launcher. What ended up happening is that these guys called me every six months afterwards saying, come back. We need you to commercialize this product again. Come back. Please, for the love of God, come back. But you'd moved on. I mean, the point is you'd taken it and just sort of chalked it up as experience. I'm going on. And I think what you did after that is you kind of put your money where your mouth was. You went on and industrialized things, didn't you? You went on and actually got experience in getting products onto the market and getting them to a mass market. Is that correct? Yeah. So I had the conversation with the two inventors basically the week before graduation. I was thinking, uh, you know, this is like the make it or break it thing. Either they're going to bring me on and I'm going to commercialize this entire product or nothing's going to happen out of it. Uh, so it was a pretty interesting conversation just to even start high pressure environment. And they said no. And so one week after that, I accepted another job with a tier one automotive supplier uh, called uh, Multimatic. Um, and the ironic thing is that uh, in the UK, you guys are probably really into Le Mans mm-hmm. and Formula One. Uh, so Multimatic uh, actually makes the Ford GT for Ford. Are you serious? Entire vehicle in Markham, Ontario. My favorite car of all time, I have to say, but we're not going to go there, but I have to say what a significant vehicle. But anyway, carry it's on. It's a beautiful car. The The company then that was involved with that was the company that you went to, to work with. Is that correct? Yes. So I, I worked in the, the product sales office and the way that the company is actually organized as a tier one automotive supplier is a little bit different as compared to what I've heard about others. So we had the product sales office, which is above the entire organization or slightly detached. And so below the sales organization was manufacturing, simulation, and engineering. Uh, And so my role was basically to commercialize uh, door hinges, uh, what seems to be a very boring product. Let me tell you, there is a lot of safety regulation, corrosion regulation, and cyclical regulation dealing with your car door hinges. You can thank the automotive industry for the amount of engineering and capability that it has put into your vehicle. So I imagine this company being a tier one company, right? They obviously earned that tier one and they were obviously very good at what they did but what sort of experiences did you get at that company and what helped you to formulate the rest of your businesses from that experience so i'm going to clarify a little bit of the language there david yeah tier one is actually one step removed from the oem so basically tier one supplies components to the original equipment manufacturer right original equipment manufacturer is like ford it's gm it's uh fca which is now stellantis uh, Lamborghini, BMW, uh, the brands that you know, those are the OEMs. Uh, 
Uh, tier ones are basically companies that have established themselves reputationally as actually providing components uh, that can pass muster, I guess you can say, with the OEM. Got you. Up to the standard, at least, if not better in some cases. Correct. Yes. Got you. Okay, that's fair enough. Thanks for that clarification. So what did you learn being in that environment? What were some of the key things that you took away which have now helped you to develop your own products and your own ideas? Yeah, so the the main thing that I learned from Multimatic is it's the process of commercialization, not just on a very small scale, like for... Um, and I say small scale for the, the grenade launcher for firefighters just because it was a startup phase, um, but also on a very large scale. Um, and what we were commercializing was close to 3.5 million door hinges per year uh, across four factories, um, uh, which is unreal. Mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah. As a 26-year-old, I was um, in the office, the sales office, out of 40 um, the next nearest employee was 10 years my age, uh, my senior, and I was the only one without an MBA. You know, that's really interesting you say that because for somebody so young to go into that environment, there's a lot of hard lessons that you're learning as you're going along. Um, but what were the key things that made you stand out or be able to be more productive or more successful than maybe some of your colleagues? What were some of the key things that you did? Uh, David, it's this charming smile. <laughs> and outrageous personality. Well, I can certainly vouch for that, you know, because <laughs> I'm seeing you face to face today. And absolutely, I think there's a lot to do with personality. I've been in sales for 20 odd years and I, know, I understand that, you know, you've got to have that smile, you've got to have that great personality. But there are so key fundamentals that, that you do that are different to other people that make you more successful. So what would you say with the other attributes? There is actually a mentor that I had this past semester who put it just perfectly. He was the former governor of uh, New Hampshire. If you're explaining, you're losing. And so <laughs> I had to have a crafted message every single time that I actually approached the customer. And this wasn't really something that I actually mastered during my process at Multimatic. And so it was only something that really just recently crystallized. Um, so really, from that perspective, you, you, you were su clearly successful in that company. And what happened after that? Did you decide, OK, I've sold enough hinges in my life. I want to move on to something different. I, I actually got fired from that job. OK. And the, the reason why is because the, the company was saying that I wasn't fulfilling my entire job responsibilities. Um, I'm not really sure how else to spin that, except that if you're an individual and you're in a, a role that is so demanding and so challenging, uh, the way that I kind of looked at it and the way that uh, the person who hired me into the company said is, you're going to fail every day and you have to be okay with it. If you're not okay with it, don't take this job. Wow, that's that's quite a statement to make, isn't it, when you first go into that environment? But you know what I liked about what you just said there? You were humble enough to put your cards on the table and say, I got fired from that job, you know? And actually, you almost wore that as a badge to be proud of. I mean, getting fired or, or failing at something... I know you've kind of explained it's a way of learning, but explain to somebody in the real terms of what, how do you feel in that time when you get fired? Have you anticipated it already? Did you not anticipate it? What did you immediately feel? And what did you do about it? How did you convert that? The, the day that I got fired, I had a hunch, um, as probably a lot of people do uh, when they, they realize that they're about to get let go. And um, one of the things that was going through my mind or 
uh, immediately what are the next steps? What are my financial responsibilities? What is it that I can do to actually make money past the severance package, whatever it may be? And so I go through the process of actually getting fired. Um, I was a little too um, antsy or anxious or uh, however you may say it to, to actually really negotiate the severance package. So I just took it at face value. Uh, but past that, I was really, 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 I can't say this enough, really excited for tomorrow. I love that. <laughs> I absolutely adore it. <laughs> I was so excited that I called every single one of my fraternity brothers and I said, I got fired. And they all said the same thing. Well, Justin, what are you going to do? <laughs> I don't know. I, I really don't know. <laughs> It's 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 a weird feeling though. I mean, I've been fired many times, you know, in in my life as a salesperson. And you know what I often find is when you walk out that door after being fired, it's the best feeling in the world. It's it's a hard thing when you're getting fired because your mouth goes dry and you think, oh crap, what am I going to do? I've got these things that I've got to finance. But once you step out that door, there's an amazing feeling of relief and joy. It's it's a weird feeling and one of opportunity. Yeah, opportunity. I love how you actually described that opportunity. It's like this weight actually gets lifted from your shoulders and you have this completely blank, blank sheet or blank slate. And I think that a lot of people tend to try and rut themselves into what it is that they've been doing because it's the easiest way to get back on the horse. Definitely. And I really wanted to wake up the following morning and say, today, I'm not doing anything. I'm going to figure this out. And it takes it takes a little bit of confidence and having some of the hard knocks to be able to do that, you know, to be able to sort of grab your breath and to say, let's take stock of the situation. Today's a new day. What can I do today? Where am I going to go today? And that's the exciting thing, isn't it? So tell me about what, what, what happened then. You, you got to the next day and you thought, right, what, what was your mind telling you? What was your logical mind telling? What was your heart telling you? So at the time, uh, I had actually been working on this magazine, uh, this niche magazine. And I say niche, but it was super niche. Like the, the print edition was less than 100. And uh, in 2016, when I started working at Multimatic, um, I was traveling pretty frequently between Toronto and Detroit. I was also traveling to a number of uh, United States uh, and actually visiting car plants and trying to diagnose potential problems on the, the line. And I would get phone calls from family members and the, the common question was, Justin, where are you today and what are you doing? And I would try and explain it to them and they'd be like, how is this related to your job? It's like, ah, well, it's, you know, it's this really small piece on the entire big scale. And they're like, I still don't get it. So I made this magazine that detailed the entire process of commercialization from the automotive perspective for them. Wow. Wow, seriously. Yeah, and it became such a hit that my family wanted to do or wanted me to do it the following year. So I doubled the content. I improved the photos by actually putting in my photos. Uh, and I told stories about what it was that I was doing on a regular basis. And it became kind of this thought piece. Wow. It, what was crazy is that I had friends of friends of friends that were actually seeking out this magazine. And I was telling them, I, I can't pay for it. You have to pay for it yourself. And they were like, okay, so how much is it? It's $60 for a single print. And they wanted it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe this is a business opportunity. 
And uh, <laughs> I wasn't making a single penny off of it, but maybe this is a business opportunity. And so I turned the magazine into this detailed kind of function towards entrepreneurs in the Detroit area. I really wanted to focus on uh, this idea of the grunt work, uh, of what it took to actually start a company from the very beginning uh, to where it is at, at the day. Uh, because a lot of people, not only in Detroit, but my generation, feels like you know starting a company is a five-day process. Day one, you come up with an idea. Day two, you actually uh, you know have the prototype and proof of concept. And by day five, you're already selling the company on the NASDAQ for $1 billion. It's obviously easy. Everyone can do it. Oh, I wish. I wish. <laughs> Wouldn't it be lovely if life was just as simple as that, eh? Obviously, the smile and the, the great attitude to life really helped you say, guess what? I've done this. I've sold the magazine. It's going to cost you this. There you have it. You know, it's up to you whether you want it or not. And so you were successful at that again. I, obviously, when you left that industry, there was no requirement for the magazine. But that ended, obviously, when you, you left the industry, I assumed. Uh, the magazine itself, I, I tried to carry on past Multimatic. And during that time, I was actually starting a freelance photography business. Uh, so I actually grew the business from $0 into a six-figure business. And I really wanted to figure out if I could actually start a business myself and actually take it from nothing to something. And so it was kind of an experiment for me just over the course of a year. And then at the very end of that year, uh, I actually started looking at MBA school. Uh, and I applied to my father's alma mater, which is in Fontainebleau, France, NCIAD. Uh, I also applied to a couple of schools in London, the London School of Economics. I also applied to a few others. One was in Switzerland, but I got rejected to all of them. And I called my mom and I was like, I'm done. I'm totally done. Just completely just, I'm done. I, I'm done doing the applications. I don't want to spend any more money. And she's like, oh, one more. Just do one more school for me. And it happened to be Babson College. And so I looked at the website. And I was like, oh, my goodness, number one school for entrepreneurship. This is, uh, you know, something. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's something. I, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Uh, let's see what happens. Uh, so I wrote this application essay. It was dealing about a, a company called uh, The Right Flight, uh, which is talking about an electric flying car and, uh, and my idea for an electric flying car business. And I didn't actually have a name for the company. Uh, so I came up with this name, The Right Flight, on a whim in five minutes while drinking coffee uh, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And it stuck. And so I got accepted based off my application essay. And here I am at Babson College actually commercializing, not only commercializing, I, I actually have a tangible product, a 100% electric turbine that sits on a desk and runs one year. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Justin McAfee, owner and founder of Right One Incorporated. Next, I wanted to ask Justin a little bit more about his family and why he travelled around the world when he was younger. Yeah, so my, my mother is from Little Rock, Arkansas, and my father is from Missoula, Montana. And every time that I tell people that I've lived in four countries during my youth, uh, the, the next question is, oh, military? No, no, it wasn't the military. But it's the other side of the coin. I'm an oil brat. Far worse. So, 
<laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to complain because I'm in Alberta, good old oil Alberta. So I know where you're coming from. Uh, so my father worked for ExxonMobil for 18 years, and I lived in Brussels, Belgium. Uh, Paris, France, actually Fontainebleau, France, where uh, he got his MBA, Brisbane, Australia, and Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. And I have to say, the next question that you're probably going to ask is, which one was your favorite? It was Australia. Let's go to the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so really, in terms of what mum and dad's influence, I mean, dad obviously was in the oil industry. What did mum do, though? I'm really intrigued by that because she sounded like a motivator for you as well. You you had a great relationship with her. She was the one that motivated you to do the last final application to another college or university. So tell me about about mum's background. Uh, So her, her deepest passion is really to find high school youth their best fit college. Uh, there, there are thousands of universities that are across the United States and international students flock to the United States because of our, our college education system. Most of them don't make the correct fit. Uh, and it's not really by their fault. It's really just because it's a crapshoot in terms of what the school is looking for during the application process and how they connect with certain professors. And so uh, to be honest, during undergrad, it, it took me six years to get my engineering degree, and I transferred twice. So I went to three undergrad universities in the process of actually getting that engineering degree. Great variety, though. I mean, you got experience from all those different places, and uh, today it doesn't seem to be so critical to do it in such a short period of time, does it? You know, as long as you're getting the correct education and you get that qualification that you want at the end of it, Extra couple of years at college, I don't think I'd be upset about it. <laughs> and that might be a, a Canadian kind of philosophy, but in the United States, it's really interesting. It's curious because the average number of years for a person to actually get an undergraduate degree is six years. And okay. the first year, 80% of freshmen actually change their major. And then of those 80%, 60% actually change their major a second time. Wow. So what does that tell you? It just tells you that we have no idea what it is that we're doing. <laughs> exactly. Like American universities should know that we have no clue what we're doing as a freshman. I think that's a normal human thing to adapt and to see things that you know create interest in, in you as you're going along. And I don't think it's wrong to change. And I don't think it's wrong to be actually a an eternal student in many ways. I don't think that it's wrong either. The only problem that I have is that you're wasting two years of your money uh, with your college. And in some cases, like University of Michigan, it's $50,000 a year. That, that's just unbelievable. When you come to the US, the elite colleges, it's just out of most people's league. It really is. You know, uh, what, What's your perspective on that as a young person who've gone through the college system? Do you think it's become too elitist? I think that the United States has a a number of issues, uh, one of them being that we have a bipolar political system that isn't willing to work uh, across the aisle, um, which is a little bit of a shame because we're we're really isolating ourselves in terms of a perspective or uh, an objection, uh, a third party opinion uh, that could really help us solidify our, our thought process. Uh, but with the, the school system, we definitely have seen uh, an inflation uh, when it comes to academic prestige. Like here in the Boston area, uh, if you have an undergraduate degree, you're kind of looked down upon. Uh, if you have a master's degree, you're doing just fine. If you have a PhD, oh, congratulations. 
Way to go. So so that's a really interesting perspective. What happened to the, what I call the technicians of the world, or the technologists of this world, who really were the major, I suppose, fuel that fueled all the development in the kind of aircraft industry, the space industry, right the way through to, you know, the shuttle and things like that. Technicians and technologists were a very important part of that. They weren't degree people by any means, but they got the work done. They did the number crunching. They did the the guts of the design work, you know. Is there a place for people like that anymore in the industry? Uh, you know, if I said no, then I would be outcasting myself. Yeah. So I, I have to admit that, yes, there has to be a place for us. A lot of people would see that I, I may be a part of that kind of academic prestige, uh, but I really see myself as being a, a person that actually likes to get my hands dirty. Uh, so at the Go age ahead. of 16, a lot of people have grunt jobs in restaurants, but my, my grunt job was tearing down airplanes and then rebuilding them. Uh, for annuals. Uh, that was one of the, the main drivers of this obsession for turbines as well. That leads us really nicely back to what you were talking about before I asked about mum and dad. You know, with regards to your idea for the engine and uh, the, the electric engine, it was over a coffee, you said. It was at Babson College. So you were literally drinking coffee and within five or ten minutes you kind of got this idea in your head and you developed it from there. Is that right? I was so fed up with the application process that I literally just banged out this this application essay and uh to put the cherry on top i put in this company name because my sister was like oh you have to come up with a company name i'm like oh the right flight obviously and then stood it put it onto the document got accepted (laughs) serendipity or luck or whatever else it is it happened okay so I want to I want to really let the listeners know this process now. So you've got the idea. It's not going to take five days to be able to sell the company. It's going to take probably five years. Let's let's be totally honest about that. Yeah, or more. If you're doing a deep tech hardware company, most likely it's going to take close to ten years. So finding a, an investor today at the idea stage, even before the proof of concept, is almost impossible. And think of it this way: uh, Elon Musk is a majority investor in the funding rounds before the IPO. And the number of funding rounds that Tesla went through before they IPO'd is Series F, which is an average for a deep tech hardware state. Wow. Because there is a lot at stake, isn't it? We're taking a big gamble. It's new technology. It's cutting edge. And really investors have got to say, you know what, I'll invest X million in that company. And if I lose it, I lose it. It's part of the process. You've got to have people who are pretty confident and pretty wealthy as well, I would imagine. Yes. And so not only do you have to kind of be sold on this vision or this idea of the new technology, but you have to see the merits um, as it immediately gets put into the industry. And so for Right One, uh, we're, we're not only looking and targeting the drone industry, but we're, we're targeting multiple verticals. The major one that's outside the drone industry is actually HVAC solutions. What's really cool about HVAC is that today, whenever you turn on your HVAC solution, it's either on or it's off. There is no in-between. And so because of that, your temperature in your room actually fluctuates by a two-degree margin of error on either side. And that's a lot of energy that's wasted throughout the day. So what you're indicating there is that you want something that will be variable. It would ramp up in a variable way or, or in a gradual way and then ramp back down when required. And it would then sense, it would be a number of sensors within the room. That's that correct. Keep it almost absolutely spot on, yeah? Not only is it going to be spot on, but you're never going to hear it because it's always going to be running. 
and may be running at about a 10 degree operational scale, but that's 90% saved power as compared to the HVAC unit that you currently have. But you know, that's really interesting. You've done the kind of two sides of the coin there. You've done the, the sexy bit, you know, the idea of using this engine to get around the world and developing this new concept. But on the flip side of that, you've done the practical side of the business as well. You've got to be able to find a practical use for it straight off the bat or very quickly. So then that helps to bring income into the company, financing the bit that's your dream effectively. Yeah. So the, the dream that I have for Right One is actually to use it as a, a propulsion module for a flying car. I want to be able to actually fly a, a vehicle that's reminiscent of a Lamborghini that you can drive today. Something that's a, a sports car for the air that has high maneuverability, but has zero guilt when it comes to the emissions coming out of the exhaust. My, that's incredible. That's the, the big hairy audacious goal, isn't it? We're heading up to the stars, we might get to the moon first, but... Mars next sort of thing, you know? So to do the reality of that, and again, I don't want you to give your trade secrets away here, but I want to see how practical it is. You indicated when we had a conversation previously that you would like to get to Australia in a very short period of time. And I have to honestly say, after we finished our conversation, did you really say an hour or two hours to get to Australia from US? And I'm thinking, did I really hear that? Tell us that story. Tell us about what the thoughts are there. The story that I was telling you is that because I lived in Australia, I've got friends in Australia. Uh, I haven't seen them in in over a decade, decade and a half. Uh, And so it's kind of one of those missed opportunities is that friendship, that potential friendship that could have occurred. And so what what if we were able to actually fly from the United States or North America all the way to Australia uh, for tea time and then come back for lunch? Uh, like, why, what if that were even possible? I want to fly close to 7,600 miles. I want to fly 8,500 kilometers or close to it in one hour. Is it possible today? Uh, probably not. But is it possible tomorrow? Uh, well, we can definitely work on it. That's for sure. And so so the, the big dream that you've got is that a little bit like the Bransons of this world and the Elon Musk's of this world... You know, the people that come from fair, well, I know Branson came from a very humble background in many ways, although he had a well-to-do family. He didn't get a degree. He didn't, you know, do well at school. You know, he admits that he was never going to be any good at school. But what he did do is he saw a business opportunity. He saw something that was a dream that he could fulfill and actually convert into something real. And that's what he's doing, isn't it? Is that the way that you're going? Is that is that your attitude towards life? Um you know, that question is really cool because the only thing that I can think of right now is that it's a leadership opportunity. It may not, I may not succeed in actually achieving this dream, but there is definitely someone that's going to be listening to this podcast and it may influence them in terms of their direction to actually achieve the dream that I couldn't. And that's very humble. I like the way you said that, you know, you because what I did read about you, and this is something that was very interesting, and I think this really does sum you up, Justin, is that you've got people who very much admire you close hand. Like I was reading your LinkedIn, Tony Major at the Association Management for Metrolofts Apartments, okay, he had a really nice comment to say about you on LinkedIn. He said, this is the me generation, right? He said, but he said, the great thing about Justin, he says, is that he's a great asset to a team because as a board treasurer for two years, he put the team above self. And that's a wonderful thing to hear from one of your contemporaries or even one of your bosses, I suppose, technically, that, you know, even though it was a volunteer position, what I'm getting today is that you are saying, I'm going to lay the bedrock. I'm going to lay the foundation. I want to be part of this, but I don't need to be there at the end. That could be somebody else that's running across the finish line. 
where does that come from? Where does that great emotional intelligence come from? Uh, I guess the the beginnings of it actually starts with reading. Understanding that when you when you start to read books by or historical nonfiction uh, about these titans like John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and Andrew Carnegie. There is definitely a lot of me, me, me in each of those quotes, but there is also a lot of you, you, you. And if they don't have, they, they can't have me, me, me without you, you, you. And Andrew Carnegie put it perfectly by actually contracting an author, Napoleon Hill, uh, and actually writing, and Napoleon Hill wrote a book called Think and Grow Rich, which actually in the first foreword, uh, it talks about how Andrew Carnegie told Napoleon Hill, if we don't put this wisdom into a book, uh, then the people that I'm going to be surrounded with are not going to be smart enough to actually prop me up. And it's the same way with presidents in any country. It is not the president that is really running the country. I'm sorry. They're, they're figureheads. There is no way that they can do the workload without the team behind them. And so if it's a bad team, which is not publicized, we're not going to succeed. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. But, you know, the art of putting a team together, and you just summed it up, is that you've got to be able to disseminate the information. You've, they've got to be part of the solution, and they've got to be actively involved, but trusted to be able to find out some of the answers and bring those answers back to the table and say, okay, here's the information. Here's what we're going to share. Now, where do we go from here? That's our, our stepping stones. Let's lay them out ahead and let's go together. Let's grab each other's hand and let's go on that journey. And that as human beings is the most exciting thing that we can do, isn't it? I, I think so. I, I mean, the, the first or second week that I was at Multimatic, there were a number of times where I actually walked into a customer's office and said, I have never done this before. Let's, why don't you walk me through this entire process and I will give you the information that you need. And that was basically it. And I was able to do that. And that's why you were so successful, because what you didn't do is you didn't go into sell. I know what this is. I've done this before. <laughs> yeah, because really what you're doing is you're getting in beside them, you know, riding side saddle with them and, and actually feeling their pain and what have you and seeing what the problems are. And, that, that, and then, of course, that's it. It's easier to come up with a solution because uh, you've lived and breathed it. That's the point. Okay, so let's really focus back on the business because I really want this to be a vehicle for you to be able to let people know what you're doing. Uh, we've already explained that. What do you need from the community out there? You know, Not just in the podcast community, but the business community. What are you looking for? So if we're talking about urban air mobility, and urban air mobility is pretty encompassing when it comes to not only drones, but also e-VTOLs or personal transport vehicles. Uh, so... When I say urban air mobility, it's kind of the, the terminology that NASA has come up with for these particular light craft that aren't commercial. And so we're, we're going from a shift of the largest airplane, like the Airbus A380, down to the Boeing 777, uh, which is now the most popular aircraft. Can you imagine why? It's because of boarding times. Now... When we're even getting smaller in terms of aircraft and thinking about flying cars, we have to think about ecosystem development right now. It is such a nascent industry. It is such a, a, a developing industry that there are thousands of people that are coming up with these great ideas for flying cars. And if we don't have companies that are actually supporting the development, and by that, I mean like tier one companies like Right One actually providing propulsion modules to these EV tools, then we're not going to succeed as a market. We're not going to have flying cars. 
like we were promised 20 years ago. Or even longer, eh? I mean, I know man's been dreaming about flying cars from, was it Metropolis, the film from the 1920s, the silent film that showed a modern life? So really just going back to my question is, if somebody is listening to you currently on this podcast, Justin, and they said, look, I like what Justin's doing. I want to support him. What's the best way of getting a hold of you? Yeah, the best way of getting a hold of me is through our website. Uh, it's one. Okay, just repeat that again, just in case people missed it. one. And you're very uh, active on LinkedIn as well. I noticed you've got a profile there as well. So people can reach out to you and message you on LinkedIn as well, I assume. Just look up um, Justin McAfee. Is that correct? I've got the pronunciation right. Yes, yes. Uh, Justin McAfee. And I'm also going to give you um, my hyperlink, my LinkedIn hyperlink. Um, yeah, message me on LinkedIn. Uh, if you can't message me on LinkedIn, friend me on LinkedIn and actually provide a, a message and, and let's connect that way as well. But I'm, I'm very involved on LinkedIn uh, because the Urban Air Mobility crew or uh, clan or group uh, is really active on LinkedIn right now. That's great to hear because, I mean, I think, you know, I will hopefully see it in my lifetime in the next 10 or 20 years. I'm sure I will. It'll be interesting to see how we navigate the skies. If it's anything like the roads, it will be very interesting, to say the least. But that's something that we can, you know, talk about in another podcast, possibly. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love that. Okay. So just tell people as well where they can expect to see you in the next uh, couple of months, because I know you're doing a bit of traveling and I wouldn't mind you putting a shout out for... The, the venue I think you're going to in September. So uh, here in the next few months, one, we're actually going to be able to show our proof of concept. Um, we're actually going to be able to see uh, experimental values and how much better we are as compared to our competitors. Uh, and two, I'm actually a headline speaker at London Tech Week on September 23. Uh, so you'll actually get to see me at uh, Kensington Palace in London, England. Wow. Well, I hope you uh, enjoy a, a cream tea in the afternoon. That is the most desirable thing, I think, to do in Kensington Palace. <laughs> no doubt about that. But that's really, you know, joking apart, that's really something to be able to get to London Tech Week, isn't it? That is, uh, is that the kind of main venue for all these new technologies and, and for people to, be able to see you? And I suppose also an opportunity to pitch your, your product, isn't it? To see if there are funders there, people that are prepared to fund the projects as well. I, I'm not really sure that... Um seeking out particular funders or customers might be the, the correct way about going about the, the conversation at London Tech Week. I would much rather try to facilitate a conversation of ecosystem development. I mean, it basically goes back to the leadership position. If I can position myself as a thought leader, as someone that actually wants to lead the industry forward, then who would not want to partner with me? Got you. I love it. I love your boldness and your confidence. It's, 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 it's definitely infectious. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, wanted to just ask you one final question, which I think I ask all my guests this. And and you're being a young guy, actually saying if you're 18 again, probably not the right question. But if you were still at school, say you were still at high school and you had a chance to tell yourself something then, you know, what would you tell yourself at that age about going forward? I love that question so much. If you're in high school today, and you're, you're curious about the road ahead, everyone else is as well. Keep pushing forward, drive yourself uh, to no end, uh, whatever that may be. It may be 
going for that additional workout. It may be reading that additional book. It may be trying to figure out that other problem that you couldn't figure out. Everything is instrumental at that age, and it's life-changing. Um, and I hate to say life-changing because um, everyone tends to use that terminology and that phrase. Uh, but for me, it was all about um, figuring out how far I could actually push myself and drive myself uh, before I was fatigued. Okay, so you really did push yourself then. That was the point, wasn't it? You wanted to see what your limits were. I, I still well, try to find my limits. Uh, you know, that's the thing I notice. I mean, is the amazing energy, and you must have a great support network of great people behind you as well, you know, personally. And uh, that you can tell. I mean, you can't achieve this just on your own. You need that great team behind you, be it personally, be it in business. Um, any final sort of things that you want to discuss or want to say uh, about uh, Right One Incorporated and, and your kind of development of the engine? Is there anything else that listeners should be able to hear or need to hear? Yeah, I, I think that um, the, the one thing that uh, anyone that's actually listening to the podcast today needs to hear is that when we're talking about flying cars, this is not something that's going to be happening tomorrow. Uh, this is definitely something that's happening today. And so if you have a, an opinion about flying cars, whether it be positive or negative, there are companies that are actually coming up with ways, technology to actually uh, down drones uh, for security measures. And so this potential issue is going to be arising when it comes to eVTOLs as well. This is a nascent industry and you can be directly a part of it, whatever it is that you want to be a part of. That's what you need to hear whether you're in high school, college, or in the industry today. Well, thank you for that. That's such great advice, and it gives hope to the younger generation as well. And people looking to pivot into a, a different role or a different industry. But uh, exciting times ahead, eh? Where is it going to go, eh? Who knows? Oh, absolutely. Ah, it's, it's always... I mean, you said on your, your LinkedIn profile, your Lunch Club profile, the eternal optimist, you and me both. Always. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about it is, and I often think there's always a silver lining to every cloud. Sometimes when it, the going gets tough and you're really in that dark place and we, you, you've been there, I've been there, you know, we've really had hard times and you get one week after another, you don't get the sale or, you know, somebody, unfortunately, you know, something happens in the family or something unfortunate happens. You've got to kind of put yourself in a position of thinking about others, thinking well, relative to other people. I have a roof over my head. I can pay for food and warmth, you know, and heating. I can get from A to B and I can still see my circle of friends. And so that is the great reset button for me. You know, I just some days when I'm thinking, oh, boy, I just go out and sit outside in the sun and think, well, at least I'm alive, you know. <laughs> oh, goodness. But you know what? It's been a sheer pleasure talking to you this afternoon. I thank you for your time because I know you're a busy guy. and uh, But you inspired me so much when we briefly chatted like on Lunch Club. And I thought, you know, i got to get this guy on my podcast because he had so much to say, so much great ideas and so much driving energy and, and ways of overcoming the obstacles. And that's what I liked about this. So thank you again. Well, I mean, I, I've got a lot of books that you can like reference or anything like that. Yeah, do please do share. Yeah. So um, Ryan Holiday has a fantastic book called Overcoming or The Obstacle is the Way. That's the book title. The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Instrumental, especially if you're an eternal optimist. 
Well, and that's really nice to hear because I like to list the uh, the books at the end of the podcast, you know, on the, the write-up and I often put the links to wherever, Amazon, what have you. But that is really great because I think you can become an optimist as well. If you're a realist, that's good. If you're somebody who thinks on the negative side of things, that's not unusual as a human being. But how do you convert that into a positive energy? How do you get there? So, okay, this is the problem. That's why you're feeling down about it. But what's the what's the the tools that you can use to say, okay, well, let's regroup tomorrow like you did when you lost your job today or tomorrow's another day. Let's see what you can do about this. Let's fix the problem. You know? the, the best news that I can give you if you're going to get fired is that you're not going to go bankrupt overnight. Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> Been there many a time. Absolutely. Well, good luck with um, London Tech Week. Uh, I think you're going to go down a storm. There, there's definitely a lot of passionate people. Uh, headed towards the flying mobility scene. Well, take care, Justin. Thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. All right. Cheers, David. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Justin McAfee, owner and founder of Right One, who wants to get you to Australia in less than an hour in your own flying car. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.